Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this time together this evening. Pray that you will help us as our as we seek to understand Scripture and as we try to apply it to our lives. We pray the Spirit of God will illuminate our minds to the truth and give us the right kind of disposition and unction and desire to be obedient to all that we encounter. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So we're looking at Paul on his third missionary journey, Acts chapter 18 through 2116. Remember, the first place he goes is to Galatia. That is, he retraces his step from Antioch and visits the churches of Galatia, Antioch of Pisidia, Iconium, Derby, Lystra, and so forth. And then he goes to Ephesus. Uh, now, in the meantime, we noticed in Acts chapter 18 that while Paul is in Galatia and before he gets to Ephesus, this Jew named Apollos came to Ephesus, you remember? And we talked about his situation last week, the problem about his salvation, when he was saved and so forth. Because remember, he comes and he says he only knows about John the Baptist. He also knows about the baptism of John. He knows about Jesus, but he doesn't know about... We were trying to figure out where he fits at, you know. Because uh, we were talking about the fact that, you know, if you're going to be saved... There is what we call the basis of salvation, which is the death of Christ. So everybody who's ever been saved is based on the fact, the basis of their salvation is the fact that Christ died for their sins. So Abraham was saved because Christ died for his sins. Now Abraham lived before Christ, but ultimately Christ died for the sins of Abraham and for all Old Testament saints. We said the means of salvation is always faith. And Paul makes that clear in Romans 4, that Abraham believed God, he had faith, he believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. So even a man like Abraham, he had faith. But we said the content of the faith, that's been a progressive thing over time until we get to the cross. That is, if Adam was saved, he had revelation from God that God gave him. And he believed that truth. He didn't have the full truth we have about the person of Christ being the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He didn't understand didn't know all that data about the death of Christ. and understand. He knew what God had promised him. God said in Genesis 3.15, I'll send someone who will bruise the head, member of the serpent, he'll bruise his heel. So he had the promise. He believed that. Abraham believed what God told him and so forth. So this is progressive until we get to the cross. Now, after the cross, everybody's got to believe the same thing. You know, you can't be saved today if you don't know who Jesus is. If you don't know about his death on the cross, you have to know about his person, who he was, and his work, what he did. But here we're in this sort of transition period where you've got Old Testament saints who were saved. I mean, people like, you know, John the Baptist's father and mother who were saved but they hadn't been baptized like we have or something. And then you have John's disciples who were saved. There's this transition going on. And Apollos, we thought, maybe was in that transition period, possibly. And so he was probably a regenerate person, but he didn't have the full knowledge about Jesus. He had believed God and so forth. So we're sort of in that transition period. So Apollos comes there, 
And then uh, Ephesus, Paul goes to Ephesus, remember? And here we are at Acts chapter 19 and verse 1. Uh, While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. Um, so he returns to Ephesus while while Paul uh, while Paul was still there. In other words, if we look at 1 Corinthians sixteen twelve, now let me place First Corinthians here. First Corinthians is written while Paul is at Ephesus. I'll talk about that in a moment. While Paul is at Ephesus, he's going to write First Corinthians, and in that epistle he says, "Now about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to go." to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Well, we know he's already gone because it says in chapter 18, verse 27, when Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, that is to Corinth, the brothers and sisters encouraged him. When he arrived, he was a great help. So Apollos goes to Corinth and then he comes back to Ephesus where Paul is at, and Paul is writing and saying, I want Apollos to go back to you again. But he's unwilling to go right now. He'll go when he has opportunity. So Apollos goes to Corinth while Paul is going through Galatia and so forth. He has a ministry there, and then he comes back to Ephesus, as Paul reports here. Now it says that Paul found some disciples and ask them, did you believe the Holy Spirit when you did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now I say here, Bill Combs says here, <laughs> this does not necessarily mean that they were genuine. Luke's practice is to portray the spiritual condition of his characters by their actions without always evaluating it. Now some people don't believe that. Some people believe the text says they're disciples, they're Christians, they're born again. There's no question about that. I don't happen to hold that. I think Luke is describing, if we look through the book of Acts, Luke describes people as they appear to be. And we have the same problem. We have people who make professions of faith, and we say they're Christians and so forth, but maybe something, as we look at their lives, as they fall away, as we, you know, they may have made a profession of faith, but that doesn't mean they're really genuine. They're not always genuine. So, Uh, Luke is describing them as people who have made professions of faith, their disciples. But Paul has a question about them. Because he said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe? And they answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So there was something about these people, we don't know what, that caused Paul to say, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So Paul has something about their status that he questions. He's going, to, he's going to question them more carefully. And he says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now there's a little bit of a technical problem here. I mention it because sometimes it comes up with the charismatic issue a little bit here. And uh, that is this relationship between believing and receiving as I say here, forgive me for this all this Greek stuff, but an aorist tense participle believed often indicates antecedent action to the main verb received. Thus, Luke could be saying that one believes first and later receives the Spirit. I've indicated this. Luke could be saying that one believes first 
and then later receives the Holy Spirit. Okay, you could believe something first and then later receive the Holy Spirit. Thus, the, translate, the, the sentence might be translated, did you receive the Holy Spirit after you believed? Similarly, the King James has, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? Now, you see, that's charismatics would camp on that verse and have camped on that verse because it says, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed or after you believed? See, you believe, then later time you received. And I'm saying here, you could argue that from the Greek, because I said this participle often indicates action antecedent to the main verb. So it's possible that it means exactly what, because this is what the Pentecostals argue. They argue that you have to believe and then later receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now they're divided a little bit about whether or not you have any part of the Holy Spirit when you believe, or you have none of it. I was just asking Pastor Ken this week. I said, tell me about your history, your Pope Pentecostal. Even though I've known him for 20 years, 25 years, I've never heard him actually give me the details. And he was telling me about growing up. And, you know, his father was a, a Pentecostal preacher. But in their church, it was pretty much, you believed, but if you didn't get the baptism, you didn't really have the Holy Spirit at all. You know, you, got, you, you believed, but until you had the baptism, now some charismatics will say, well, yeah, you do have the Spirit, sort of, you're regenerate, but you not really have the fullness of the Spirit. So that some, there's some difference of opinion there. But they will camp on this verse of the King James, because it says, have you received, Paul is saying, listen, have you received the Holy, well, this works out well for, you know, charismatic position, that is, these people didn't seem to have the fullness of the Spirit or something. And Paul says, did you receive the Holy Spirit after you believed? So I say this has been used by charismatics to argue for a separate and distinct work of the Spirit after conversion. That is, these disciples are examples of Christians who have not yet received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now you notice the King James, our NIV doesn't translate it like that. It says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when? At the same time you believed. That is contemporaneous action at the same time. As I say here, however, when the main verb is in the aorist, as we have here, as well as the participle, as in the case here, the action is normally contemporaneous. So what, what I'm saying is normally it's not what the Pentecostals say where you believe, you, re, you believe and then you receive. Normally it's at the same time. Now the Greek doesn't settle it absolutely. I'm just saying what is normally true. Normally, believing and receiving are the same time. That is, the Greek would say that here. That's why the NIV has it like that. They've got receiving and believing at the same time, right? They say, Paul says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when or at the time you believed? He knows there's something wrong here, and he wants to know, did you receive the Holy Spirit? So, you can't use this verse to prove one way or another. We have to go to other texts. And Paul says in Romans 8, if any person doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, they're none of his. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not even saved. You're not a Christian. Regeneration is by the Holy Spirit. So he says, uh, they say, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now this is another problem here. I mentioned on the top, page 29. Although the expression might imply that these men had no knowledge of the Holy Spirit at all, 
this may not be so. Bill Combs just doesn't have any definitive answers. It's just always, you know, it might be this, it might be that. You know, you might look at this and say, well, we haven't even heard there is a Holy Spirit. We don't, we haven't heard that the Holy Spirit exists. And that might be true. That might be true. Of course, that would sort of indicate they're not saved, maybe, you know, if they haven't heard. But I say here, uh, it might imply, since John had, uh, this may not be so, since John the Baptist had spoken of the Spirit, and these men appear to be adherents of his message. Verse 3, so Paul asked, what baptism did you receive? John's baptism. This sounds familiar, doesn't it? It sounds like a polis back there, doesn't it, in chapter 18. Well, we, what baptism? You've been baptized. Well, it was John's baptism, which, remember, John was a baptism of repentance and so forth and so on. So possibly, I say, they were simply ignorant, not of the Spirit's existence, but of the fulfillment of his promise, bestowal, and at, we're, we're talking about at Pentecost here. So I'm, I'm saying... The Greek here can be interpreted a couple ways. It could be taken, well, we haven't even heard that the Holy Spirit exists, that there is a Holy Spirit. And I guess that's how we would look at the NIV here, I suppose. No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. That sort of sounds like, well, we don't even know anything about the Spirit. Is there such a thing as the Holy Spirit? It could be that. could be that. Uh, but notice John seven thirty nine. Up to that time... The Spirit had not been given. Literally, the Spirit was not yet since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Remember in John 7, there's this talk about the Spirit, and John says the Spirit hadn't been given in the, in the Pentecostal sense yet because Jesus had not been glorified. Once he's glorified, raised glorified, then Pentecost comes, and we have the Pentecostal giving of the Spirit there. Well, that's the same expression. Literally, the Spirit was not yet. But that doesn't mean, you wouldn't translate, up to this time, the Spirit did not exist. You wouldn't translate this, up until that time, the Spirit did not exist. And that's what that's the same expression we have here. So it couldn't mean here, up to that time, the Spirit did not exist, since Jesus had not been glorified. It's not that he didn't exist, he just hadn't been given in the Pentecostal, in the, in the Acts 2, Pentecost since he hadn't come in that fullness. So it could be that they are saying, no, we haven't heard, we, we haven't heard that there is a Holy Spirit given in that sense, that he's come in that sense. It's a little difficult to say here for sure. The NIV takes it, and many translators take it in this sense, that they were just totally ignorant of the Spirit at all. They didn't know anything about it, and that may be the case. Because all they say is we understand John's baptism. Uh, Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied there were about 12 men in all. Um. I say here about verses 3 through 7, these men may have been disciples of Apollos. Here's one possibility. How do we account for these people? Well, maybe they were somehow disciples of Apollos. Apollos was preaching this thing about John's baptism. 
maybe they had heard about, maybe that's, that's all Apollos knew. You know, Apollos, Apollos had incomplete information. Maybe they were disciples of Apollos. Maybe they picked up that information. The problem with that information is, once you get past the cross, that information won't save you. In other words, if you're living the time of John the Baptist and he says, repent, and so forth, you can be saved by listening to John's message. John says, there's one coming after me, there's a Messiah coming. John is giving the truth that he knows, he's giving revelation from God. By believing what John said, you can be saved. But you can't be saved today. If we go around and preaching, let me tell you something. Uh, repent, because, you know, uh, because there's a Messiah coming. That's not the message today. We need a fuller message. The Messiah has come, and he's the Son of God. He's died on the cross for your sin. And you've got to trust him. So it's a, there's more data necessary. So I'm saying one possibility is that these men may have been disciples since John the Baptist had spoken of the Spirit, and these men appear to be adherents of his message. Possibly they were simply ignorant, not of the Spirit's existence, but his, but of his bestowal. So I say here in 3 through 7 then, this may, these may have been disciples of Apollos, although one wonders why he didn't enlighten them after his own instruction from Aquila and Priscilla. As with Apollos, it's difficult to determine whether these men were already saved. Their baptism and subsequent display of the spiritual gifts would seem to indicate they were not, they were saved at that, at this time. So I take this to mean, uh, the fact is that Paul says, you were not saved. This message you heard is not complete. You need to know about Jesus. They understood that. They were water baptized. And then God gave evidence that this was the true message. Here is, remember, the, the purpose of these spiritual gifts is to authenticate the message and the messenger. So God, by this, speaking in tongues here and prophesying, indicates this is the true message. What Paul is speaking is the genuine message of God, and these men have it. So... I made it a little difficult, but I take that these men had an incomplete message. Remember I said before that in church history it's very interesting that, and especially in Ephesus it's talked about, the church fathers talk about this, that there were, long after the New Testament, people who were sort of disciples of John and not of Jesus. <laughs> they never got over the John thing. They just kept following the John and so forth, and they were sort of disciples of him and so on. Um, remember even in Jesus' day they were reluctant, John points to Jesus but these people are reluctant to, to switch their allegiance so I'm just hypothesizing here, maybe these men were something like that they had an incomplete message Paul sees that, he sees that they are not really genuine Christians he gives them the complete message here and then they're baptized with Christian baptism now and he puts their hands on them, and the Holy Spirit comes on them in this outward way to demonstrate that, you know, this is the true, genuine message. Yes? Today, uh, well, actually, at any time from the uh, post-apostolic age to up until today, wouldn't, it, would, wouldn't that be a, an inappropriate question when Paul asked these people, have you received the Holy Spirit? Because First Corinthians twelve thirteen, that's not an experiential thing, that's a positional thing. We know we have the spirit, 
because the Bible tells us we do, not because of anything we feel. And uh, in other words, that's given to us. So uh, at some time here, at some and, and I realize Acts is kind of a transitional book, but at some point, at some point, that question would have become inappropriate. Yeah, and so what what Wes is saying here is, um, wouldn't it? I mean, he what he's saying is that you know today here's a person who makes a profession of faith and so on. <clears throat> we don't normally say, "Did you receive the Holy Spirit?" Because although the Holy Spirit regenerates us, and that's an experience, and it changes us, we have to judge by their fruit. We have to look at a person's actions, their conduct. We, we accept their profession of faith. They make a profession of faith. And then we expect their conduct to conform. To, that we expect change in their lives, and you know whatever we we look at that. So what he's saying is we don't normally ask that question today. There's a couple of things here. Luke doesn't give us the full account here, so maybe there was something in their character that was deficient. I don't know. Or it could be. Remember, in the first century, there was this manifestation of supernatural gifts uh, in various situations. Maybe. Well, the problem is Luke just doesn't tell us. You know, maybe there was something that Paul saw that they should have displayed that they didn't display. And I don't, you know, I don't know whether that was a supernatural thing or whether it was something in their character that, you know, that made him say, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So that's about the best I can think of. So is there any Bible indicative thing of where at some point, like A.D. 52, where there'd be a hard line drawn in the sand, uh, no, you wouldn't, or it was just kind of a transition. It was a transition because you know the, 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 the supernatural gifts existed right up till the end of the apostolic age. You know from church history that all the church fathers in the second century talk about these things fading off there with the apostles. Time you get to Chrysostom, you know, in the fourth century. He says, we don't understand anything about First Corinthians here. We don't know what that is. We don't, we, nobody's had any experience like that. So the, the, with the apostolic age, these gifts disappear, mm-hmm. and they just sort of fade from church history. All right. So we see then a, a summary of Paul's ministry here. Um, I guess we looked at John... Yeah, a summary of Paul's ministry here, uh, verses 8 through 12. Verse 9 says, uh, well, verse 8 first. um, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. Um, Remember, we talked about this last semester, but I say here again, Christians were apparently first designated as the way. We saw that all the way back in chapter 9, verse 2, uh, here in 19 and, and following, you know. It may refer, we talked about back in 9, 2. It, we don't know why they were called the way. We could speculate and say it may be because uh, as the, the way to life, the Christian is the way to life. We think about John 14 here. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the way to life. So it may be that's what body were called the way, the way to life. So uh, there are some disciples here. Some publicly maligned the way. Paul left. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. 
So as I say, he had some success in spite of the opposition, some disciples, and he goes to this lecture hall of Tyrannus. Um, we don't know whether Tyrannus here, as I say, was the owner of the hall or the regular orator of the hall. A tradition says, an early tradition, just tradition, that says that Paul uh, lectured there from or taught there from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. every day. That's what some church, early church uh, manuscript, early Christian manuscripts say. Uh, Tyrannus means tyrant. So, you know, people speculate, was he, was he just a tyrant as a teacher, you know? And that's why they call him Tyrannus. We, we don't know why. But anyway, Paul gets this facility that he can use, and he's able to teach there for a long time. We haven't seen anything quite like this uh, before. Um, he took disciples and, and lectured daily. This went on for two years, can you imagine? So that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Uh, now the total time of Paul's ministry was probably about three years. Verse 8 says he was three months in the synagogue. Remember right there, verse 8. Here it says this went on for two years. But if you turn over to the Acts chapter 20, verse 31, this is Paul in Ephesus a little later. He said, or in Miletus, he says, so be on your guard. He's telling the Ephesian elders of the church, remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. So Paul in Acts 20, 31 says that I was warning you in Ephesus for three years. So we think his ministry was about total three years there in Ephesus, quite a long ministry. And it says that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So it may be at this time is where the churches of Asia Minor were established. We know a lot, we know about these churches, many of them in the book of Revelation. Remember the book of Revelation mentions those churches uh, uh, like, you know, Pergamon, Pergamon and Sperna. And we know about Colossae because Paul writes an epistle to the Colossians. And in that epistle he says, I didn't establish this church. You know, it was established by one of Paul's disciples actually established the church at Colossae. So it may be that Paul, while he was teaching there for two years, people were saved and went out. Because we know uh, Colossae mentioned the church at Laodicea and Hierapolis and so forth. So there's, um, there's a lot of churches there for him. And so Paul being there for three years could have had you know, people going out and establishing churches in those cities. Um, well, uh, verse 11, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. So even the handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. These, I say, were probably the personal garments, his sweat clothes, his work aprons, which had maybe touched him. And uh, remember 2 Corinthians 12, 12, I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle, including signs and wonders and miracles. Uh, Romans 15, 18 through 19. Now Paul writes this epistle to the Romans just a short time later here when he goes down to Corinth. He, say, he says, I will not venture to speak any, of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God 
by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the Spirit. So, I'm just referring to the fact that these miraculous signs and wonders accompanied Paul wherever he went. And remember, these are the marks, Paul says, these are the marks not of every Christian. <laughs> you know, if every Christian did signs and wonders, they couldn't mark people off as apostles. So I persevered doing the marks of the true apostles, which include signs, wonders, and miracles. And here is an evidence of that. Uh, God permitted this, that even the work clothes of Paul, people were healed by those things, just to show, to authenticate who Paul was as a true spokesman and what he's saying is true. Verse 13, we have the seven sons of Siva. Some Jews who went about driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. As I say here, some Jewish exorcist, on coming into contact with Paul and his preaching, attempted to, to make magical use of this new name they had heard. So they think there's some. this is a magic formula. In the name of Jesus, you know, just like we hear on TV, you know. In the name of Jesus, come out, you know, or do this, be healed, you know. It's like it's some formula, you know. Well, it's not that. When we say in the name of Jesus, we based on the authority of Jesus. We're, we're calling upon his authority. Not, not that there's some magic to J-E-S-U-S kind of thing. It's who he is that brings about any healing or anything like that. So they, they think it is. We know that Jews were sometimes involved in exorcisms. Uh, think about Matthew chapter 12. This is Jesus in that passage called the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, Matthew 12. Uh, this is when he has cured, he has cured a man who is deaf, who is mute and blind. Um, and the Pharisees heard this and they said, it's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demon, that this fellow drives out demons. So they, they see the fact that he's healed this blind man and this mute man and he's, he's, he did it by driving out this demon, remember in Matthew 12. And so the Pharisees are trying to answer this and say, okay, he did it, but he did it by Satan's power. He drove these by Satan. And he'll say, well, that's kind of stupid. Is Satan going to drive out Satan? Right? <laughs> really? Yeah. He says, and then he says, if I drive out demons, let's assume for a moment that I did drive out demons by Beelzebub. Because his first argument is, first of all, Beelzebub wouldn't be driving out his own followers. That's nonsense. But let's just assume for a moment that I drive out demons. By whom do your people drive them out? So you see, they were involved. I'm just, I'm just using that to show Jesus is referring to Jewish exorcisms. Jews were exorcising. And here we see some Jews doing it. Exorcisms, doing exorcisms. And um, they were involved in it. And, and he says here very clearly, uh, they would say in the name of Jesus... Now, about exorcism in general, I don't really think that unsaved people or Jews would have really the power to exorcise. I don't think there's any formula to exorcise demons. Demons can only be exorcised by the power of God, the genuine power of God. Now, a lot of people can attempt to do it and try to do it, and they can be fooled by demons into thinking they're doing it. There's plenty of people in the world today running around exorcising demons, but I'm just saying I don't think they have you know, any real power to do it. 
it would be by the power of God. They, they can't, by speaking some formula or something like that, they're not going to be exercised a demon. Demons can deceive people, all kinds of things, crazy things. So they're not really capable of this. They're claiming to do this, but I don't think they have any real power. They're just looking for another formula here. Seven sons of Siva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. I mentioned on the top of page 14. That's a little bit of a problem because we translate here, a Jewish chief priest was doing this. Seven sons, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. Uh, the Greek word for chief priest is in the singular as it's used here. Use refers to the high priest. The plural is used for members of his family and other priestly officials. So if you look at the way the temple was, was done in Jerusalem, you had the chief priest, the chief, the high priest, I'm sorry, and then the gospels refer to what's called chief priest, the high priest and plural chief priest. The chief priests were usually members of the high priest's family, his sons and so forth. They were the chief priests. You had a chief priest over the 24, the, the priests were divided into 24 divisions and uh, they would serve 20, each one, each division would serve for a week, and then they'd serve for another week. The Jewish, new, the Jewish year is, is divided into 48 weeks. So one of these divisions would serve for two weeks a year. So you'd have a chief priest over each one of these divisions. Remember it says that John the Baptist's father was a member of the, of the order of Abijah, the chief priest who over that, of that order. Well, this is a little strange here because... It says here, in our NIV, trying to make sense out of this, it says that uh, one of a Jewish chief priest, but generally the singular means Jewish high priest. But as I say, there's no record of a high priest named Siva. So we don't know of any high priest named Siva. Now maybe there was one, we just don't know, but what would a high priest doing be? Possibly he was a member of the high priestly family, or he just assumed the title for professional purposes in order to impress and delude the public. We just don't know why he's called this high priest or chief priest here. Some believe Luke is using the term in a non-technical sense, meaning a chief priest, as many translators translations read it. Uh, the ESV, I think, says high priest here, so they keep it high priest. But the NIV thinks Luke is using it in a non-technical sense of just a chief priest thinking he was a genuine chief priest. Maybe so. Or maybe he's just assuming the title. We just don't know uh, which one is true here in this case. But whatever the case may be, they're trying to cast out demons. They're obviously making money by this. They don't do this for free. Uh, one day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? <laughs> then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known uh, to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Uh, as I say, this is not an indication of mass conversion, but a recognition of, of the power associated with the new Christian faith. Think about Acts 5, last semester. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. So they were seized with fear about this, respect, held in honor, but 
It's not talking about mass conversions here. Many, verse 18, of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. Um, In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. So we're talking about grew in power. The power of the Lord, as I say, to save and sanctify is able to prevail over any magic spell that people have. What would we do if we had somebody who was demon possessed today? You know, what would you do? Would you come out? Come out, you. <laughs> we always, when I was teaching in seminary, we would have a what we call a senior doctrinal exam. The seniors have to go before the faculty, and they have to sit there for hours and answer questions. And some of those are trick questions, unfortunately. You know. But anyway, one of the questions we'd ask them was about exorcism. You know, what would you do about exorcism? But you know, where I've taught and what we have generally, what most people believe is that Christians don't have any special power of exorcism themselves, that God doesn't give us any gift of exorcism. We don't see much in our country today that we could, we usually think of as demon possession. It, it just doesn't Salem, seem... Massachusetts was the last, Salem, right? Well... We have to take it down to the waste. I'm not sure there was any... I'm not sure there was any... I'm not sure there was any demon possession there. <laughs> but you hear about it in foreign countries, and you hear stories, and you hear, you know, in, in primitive countries and so forth. But we would normally say that, you know, we could we would just basically have to pray for that person. Because it would be up to God. You know, if we think the person has a... If we somehow thought... I never met anybody I thought was demon-possessed. Well, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, you know, what would we do? We'd have to pray. You know, God, do something for this person. Help this person. That's all we could do. We don't have any special power. There's no special gift of exorcism. There's no special formula. I mean, the Roman Catholic Church has certain formulas and so forth to do that kind of thing and so on. But there's nothing given like that in Scripture that we have the power to do that. The apostles could. Jesus gave the apostles power to do that, but he hasn't given that to you and to me to do that kind of thing. So we would have to handle it by prayer. If a person would listen, if they're in the coherent, we would have to try to give them the gospel because the gospel would be the answer ultimately salvation would be the ultimate answer regeneration would be the answer for any sort of demon possession ultimately if you could get a person to listen well um, verse 21 we have Paul's travel plans I guess I forgot to mention here I don't know why I didn't mention it here uh, Oh, I do. I see. Paul's travel plans. I say there, it was during his stay in Ephesus that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. So here's another epistle we can add to our chart here. Paul wrote Galatians back in Antioch after the first missionary journey. He writes 1 and 2 Thessalonians on his second missionary journey when he's in Corinth. And now he writes 1 Corinthians from Ephesus on his third missionary journey in a, around AD 55. Now, we don't know exactly when during this three-year period, but sometime during this three-year period, he writes 1 Corinthians. Um, 
Um, I don't know why that is there. Um, I guess I've got First Corinthians sixteen five through nine, but I didn't put a chart up on there. But I was just going to. If I'll, I'll read this in a second. In First Corinthians sixteen, Paul says uh, uh, he's writing to the church at Corinth about the collection. He says, now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I have told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping and so forth. When I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with the gift to Jerusalem. This, this offering that we're going to talk about here and we'll be talking about is a missionary offering that Paul is, Paul is collecting money to take back to Jerusalem. <coughs> Uh, there's some sort of dire straits, some sort of need for financial aid. And Paul is going around to the Gentile churches collecting offering for, for the churches, the churches in Judea, Jerusalem. And so he says, in, he's, he's writing to the Corinthians. He's in Ephesus right now. And he says, uh, I'm going to, I want you to take this offering. And when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve. That is, there's, Paul is going to bring with him back to Jerusalem some men from the church at Corinth and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. So at this point in his plan, Paul is in Ephesus. He says, when I come over to Corinth, I'm going to get this money and have some men from your church take it back to Jerusalem. And if it seems advisable, I will go with them. Now, Paul does go with them, as we'll see later on, but that's his plan right now. But he says, after I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while, even spend the winter, so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I don't want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay on at, Pentecost, at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. So there he is. Paul is at Ephesus. Uh, he's writing 1 Corinthians here in about A.D. 55. Now in verse 21, we have Paul's travel plans. Here's Paul in Ephesus. He's, he's there. This is during his three-year time. He says, after all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. Here's what Paul says he is planning to do. Um, well, let me hold on to that for a minute. Um, Paul decided that he would go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. So Paul says, I'm in Ephesus, I want to go to Jerusalem, but I'm going to go through Macedonia, which is like Philippi, Thessalonica, and Achaia, that's Corinth. Of course, he was Athens is in Corinth too, but there's not much indication of a church there, as far as we know. Notice what I say here about verse 21. Paul decided, literally, Paul purposed in the spirit or spirit. Remember, I said that uh, in the oldest manuscripts we have, uh, there are no distinction between small letters and capital letters. So, you know, we write spirit, 
all we just write is small. We distinguish between the Holy Spirit with a capital S and a, just a that's Greek. That's Greek. It's Greek to me, anyway. So there is no way to distinguish in the text. Sometimes what we're talking, we have to tell by context. Are we talking about the Holy Spirit or spirit? So literally, it says here. At this time, Paul purposed in the Spirit. Now, is that in his Spirit? That's what the NIV says. The NIV translates Paul purposed in his Spirit as Paul decided. Paul purposed in his Spirit, Paul decided. Or it could be Paul purposed in the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit. So I say there's debate as to whether this is a reference to Paul's human spirit as the NIV Holman Christian translated, Holman Christian Standard Bible, though untranslated in both New American Standard and King James, or the Holy Spirit as the, the ESV and New King James Version. So, the NIV has Paul purposed in his spirit, that is a small s, and they translate it, decided. So does the Holman Christian Standard, New American Standard, King James. Or it could be Paul decided in the Holy Spirit as the ESV, New King James. I say here, a reference to the Holy Spirit, I think, seems more likely because of Luke's use of the impersonal verb, I must visit Rome also, which usually connotes the divine will. In 2022, the expression would then also refer to the Holy Spirit, indicating that Paul's Paul's plans were in conformity to the will of God. So if we look over chapter 20 and verse 22, this is Paul, a little later, speaking to the Ephesian elders. And what does he say? And now compelled by the Spirit, capital S, I am going to Jerusalem. So these are exactly the same kind of things, pretty much. And so you have to decide... Are they both talking about the human spirit? Are they both talking about the Holy Spirit? Or is one talking about the human spirit, one talking about the Holy Spirit? What's going on here? The NIV has, in chapter 19, Paul decided in his human spirit. Paul decided. And then over here, Paul says, I'm now compelled by the Holy Spirit. You could take them both as human. Paul decided in his spirit, and he's compelled by his own spirit. You see what I'm saying? It's It's... You could go both ways here. The NIV takes the first one, but I'm suggesting that both of them are the Holy Spirit. The second one, clear. well, the NIV takes the second one, and I'm suggesting both. Now, you wonder why I'm talking all about that. It's because this is going to come up in a little while. Because there have been people who have suggested that Paul has is out of the will of God here. He's just blown it here. Uh, one of the guys I used to listen to when I was young Warren Wiersbe. I don't know if you know Warren Wiersbe. Wiersbe says here, Paul blew it here. That he went to Jerusalem he shouldn't have. He got himself arrested, got shipwrecked, got sent to Rome. This was all a big mistake. He was out of the will of God when he did this. And so they take all these as human spirit. 
And Paul, compelled by his human spirit, says, I'm going to Jerusalem. Because later, there, there's this uh, prophecy from Agabus that says, you know, hey, don't go. You shouldn't go. And Paul disobeys that. So we'll have to deal with that. So I'm just kind of setting the stage here for what's going on. But I say here, and on page 30, Paul felt that the eastern part of the empire had been sufficiently evangelized. So from Jerusalem, now this is Paul writing just a little later. Remember, he's in Ephesus now, but he's going to go to Corinth. He's writing this. He says, so from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. From Jerusalem to Illyricum. Illyricum is, uh, I don't have a map here. Illyricum is kind of up there where Yugoslavia is. It's above, above Macedonia on the coast up there. Now, we don't have any reference to him actually going up there, but he says here, all the way up there. So he may have gotten up there sometime. I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. And he seems to imply that's sort of the reason why, well, it's one reason why I haven't come to Rome so far, because there's already church there. And Paul's basically a church planner. He goes and plants churches where there has not been any church before, generally. He says, I've been hindered by Satan, but I'd like to come anyway now. But now that there is no place for me to work in these regions, sounds kind of impossible when you look at the map of there. It says, but Paul has evangelized the major cities, apparently. Paul has evangelized the major cities. He, he does, he's not going to evangelize everything himself. He's been in Asia. He expects them to evangelize that, you know. He's been in Macedonia. They're there to evangelize. He's been in Achaia. He expects Corinth to evangelize that. He's, he's just going to these pioneer areas, new areas. And then he expects the churches to evangelize those areas. Now that there is no place for me to work, and since I've been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I'm going to Spain, and I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I enjoyed your company for a while. Paul is saying here, as we'll see, that he wants to make Rome the new base for his operations in the Western Empire. Antioch has been his base of operations in the eastern part of the empire. But now he wants to come to Rome, have them assist him. That's a way of saying money. <laughs> uh, to have them assist him as he goes to the western part of the empire, Spain and that way out there. Uh, he therefore decided to return to Jerusalem and then go on to, on to Rome. Here's what he plans to do. So he decides to go to Jerusalem, then on to Rome. Remember, he says here in uh, verse 21 of chapter 19, after all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. And after I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. So Paul's plan here, as I say here, um, was to go to Jerusalem and to Rome. On the way, he would visit the churches of Macedonia and Achaia, ministering to them and gathering from them a collection for the Jewish Christians of Jerusalem. After Jerusalem and Rome, he planned to take up a Gentile mission in the western part of the empire, using the Roman congregation as the base for that western outreach 
just as the church at Syria, Antioch, Syrian Antioch, had been the base for evangelizing the eastern part of the empire. So that's Paul's plan. He says, I'm here in Ephesus, I'm going back to Macedonia, and then after I go to Achaia, I'm going to go back to Jerusalem, and then I'm going to head off to Rome. Well, it doesn't work out exactly like he thinks, because what really happens is, we'll see, he comes over here to Corinth, and he's going to get on a ship to go back this way, and there's a plot to kill Paul as he gets on board. And so he says, so he decides to backtrack. He backtracks and comes all the way around here, comes all the way back, stops in Ephesus, that's Acts chapter 20, stops in Miletus, calls for the elders, comes all the way back here, and then he comes back to Caesarea, port of Caesarea, goes down to Jerusalem, gets himself arrested in Jerusalem, remember? Gets himself arrested in Jerusalem, is taken to Caesarea. He spends two years in prison in Caesarea. He appeals to Caesar, and he does go off to Rome. So it doesn't work like he says. He gets to Rome, but he's a prisoner, taken prisoner to Rome. But that was his plan. Here was this, this is what I'm planning to do. It just doesn't work out as he ultimately hoped that it would. He gets there, but obviously Paul's not omniscient, and God didn't tell him all the details and everything. This is just his particular plan to go. Uh, he sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. I mentioned on the top of page 31. He's probably the well-known companion of Paul mentioned in 2 Timothy 4.20. But, if, but it's doubtful if he is the same person mentioned in Romans 16.23 whose job would not permit him to travel with Paul. This was a common name. So remember, we had this man, Erastus. Uh, I thought I had, I guess I didn't put it up there. Did I? No, I guess I didn't. Um, I thought I put a slide up. Remember, we had this, we had at Corinth a picture of a piece of pavement with the name Erastus on it, who was the city, was the, sort of the treasurer, the city clerk there. And we said, that's not, what I'm trying to say is that's probably not the guy. This guy was an official in Corinth. And so he says, when Paul is in, he says, I'm going to send, Tim, I'm going to send Timothy and Erastus. This is just another traveling companion of the apostle Paul and not that particular person. Then the name is a common name. So Paul's getting ready to head out. But before he heads out, there's one final episode here that begins in verse 23, and that's the riot at Ephesus. So we're we're down to the last stage of Paul's ministry, the very last thing, before he leaves, because in chapter 20, verse 1, it says, When the uproar had ended, Paul sent the disciples, and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. So he does set out for Macedonia here, but the last thing that happens here, right before he leaves, is there's a riot in Ephesus. And that's what we're looking at at verses 23 through 40. But we'll have to do that next week because you can see our time has come up here. Thank you very much, Lord willing. We'll see you next week.